The only thing worse than flying with kids on the plane is flying with your own kids on the plane. Um, the, the reason is that you know no one likes having kids on their, on their flight, and, and you can tell, especially at the Stroop House, the few times we've been on the plane, if somebody sits next to us and goes, oh, <laughs> like, you think you feel that way. So last summer, Whitney and I decided to take the boys to Florida, and I know that sounds like we're just like, you know, ballers, but really we prefer to call it balling on a budget because we had vouchers from a time that Whitney voluntarily flew standby and got bumped, and we have family in Florida, so we stay for free, so kind of more balling on a budget than ball in, but you know, whatever. And so we, we get on the airplane and all of the poor people around us, they're like get asking to get off to go buy noise canceling headphones, you know, like maybe, maybe I can just get another flight later, or like, you know, drag me off the plane, whatever it takes. And so, um, so we get ready to take off and Abel at the time was three years old and he's sitting next to me and we have our secret weapon, the iPad. Whatever we need to have, to have a moment, whenever we need Abel to just kind of chill out, we give him the iPad. It's a very rare treat in our house, like maybe once a month or so. So he loves every moment he gets with it. So we get on the plane. As soon as we buckle him in, I'm like, ta-da! Now don't bother me for the next two hours, please, for the love of everything. So the plane gets, you know, the plane gets, gets full and everybody's having their struggles putting the overhead bags in and, you know, sitting in the wrong seat and everything that happens when you fly. And as things start to get settled, Abel looks at me and he goes, Daddy, are we about to blast off? And I said, yeah, shortly, buddy, here, just a couple minutes, you know, it'll take a minute, but we'll go. About 30 seconds passing, Daddy, when's it time to blast off? You'll know, just trust me, you'll know. You're sitting right by the window, you'll see it, just relax. Please, play your iPad, please. 30 seconds pass. Hey, Daddy. When do we blast off? In the first couple of times, everyone thought it was cute, but we get to time three, four, five, and the people are already pushing the flight attendant call button, like, can I, can I sit on the wing? And so, so time keeps going, right? And the, the flight attendants are doing that thing they do, you know, like the exits are here and here, and your exit, closest exit may be behind you. Pull your oxygen mask on before you help other people. Like, oh, they're doing all this. And they was going, now is it time to blast off? Daddy, now is it time to blast off? Now is it time to blast off? And I'm like, dude, we're going to get off the plane and go home if you don't stop. So then, you know, the moment comes and we taxi back and we hit the runway and, and we go and we start taking off and he's looking out the window and he's super impressed and, you know, he's flying. Maybe you remember taking your kids on a flight for the first time and, and he's just blown away and he sees the clouds and we're flying through the clouds and about five minutes of silence, he looks at me and he goes, Daddy, how does a plane fly? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, our car doesn't fly. How does a plane fly? And I had one of these moments, and if you're a parent, you've had this exact moment where you think you can kind of just explain something to your kids long enough that they'll stop listening because you don't really know the answer either, but you're just going to talk until they turn off. That's kind of was the goal. And I was like, well, buddy, you see, um, it's, you know, engines and thrust and the pilot pulls the throttle and flying and stuff, and, but he keeps listening. 
And now I realize like other people around are kind of like chuckling because they realize I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm just trying to fumble my way through trying to explain how an airplane works. So I decide to get on the internet of, of the plane and find something simple that I can use to explain to Abel because I have no idea what I'm talking about anymore. And I come across this quote and it shut him up forever. And I'm always thankful for this quote. The twin enemies of flight are gravity and drag. Gravity pulls the plane down and drag holds the plane back. This is telling you why planes can't fly, but I said this to Abel and he goes, oh, okay, and went back to his iPad. (laughs) So to this day, I have no idea how a plane flies. You can try to explain it to me afterwards if you want, but I'm probably going to go, oh, okay. And um, it's this like, you know, you know how how it goes, right? Sometimes you don't know the answer. I'm a huge fan of the quote from Albert Einstein that says, if you can't explain something simply, you don't really understand it. And this is true for me in an airplane flight. Like, all I know is I buckle my seatbelt, I, I eat the pretzels, and in two hours I get where I need to go. But I was starting to think about some of the important things in my life and whether or not the things that matter most to me are things that I can explain. And whether or not I can explain these things simply to someone to prove that I really know them. And so then I started thinking because I knew Easter was coming and I knew that Easter is, is an important time for us to, to settle in and just kind of break it down as simply as possible. And so I started thinking, can I explain following Jesus simply? Can I explain what it means to be a Christian simply? And I started to think through what that looked like and what it meant. And then I started to think about some of you and I'm like, can the people who go to Highland Explain Christianity simply. And so what I wanted to do today is for us to just take a moment and and to settle in together and start to figure out how we can most simply explain Jesus. And we're going to do it with two words. And these two words are are, are crucial to following Jesus, and they're crucial to you. So here's the deal. If you've been following Jesus for 80 years, today is for you. Today is a reminder of who Jesus is and what he did. If this is the first time you've stepped in a church in your whole life, if you only came because your mom said you have to come for family church service and family pictures afterwards if you want to eat Easter meal, if you only came because somebody invited you, today is for you. Because what we're going to do for the next couple of minutes together is just lay out as simply and and as, as easily to explain as we can what we believe all of this is for. Because if you went and asked somebody what, 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 are, what is a Christian, the list of what they would tell you would probably be pretty long. They'd probably say, well, Christians, they're the ones who they don't drink, they don't chew, they don't go with girls that do. You know, like, um, Christians, they're the ones that don't dance because dancing can lead to bad things. You know, like, like they're the, that's, that's, that's a Christian. Christians are a voting block. Christians are, you know, the, the angry people on Twitter. Like, whatever, whatever your, your assumption is, is a lot of people would tell you that's what Christians are. But I wanted to take a moment for us and just break it down as simple as possible to who and what this all means. And so we're going to do it with two words, and these words are are important, so if you're a write-or-down kind of person, I encourage you to write it down, Um, but but regardless, I want you to know these two words. The first word is atonement, and atonement's probably not a word that you use all that often. Um, It's kind of an older, like, longer word. Some of you, it has more than two syllables, so you're out regardless, but but atonement is this word that, that describes what happens. 
Here's what you need to know about atonement. Atonement is the satisfying demands for justice when a crime has been committed. To help you think about atonement, I want you to think about the name Gary Wayne Wilson. If you've been around Maysville long, that name probably rings a bell for you. But if it doesn't, then I'll tell you the name Danny Hay. Danny Hay was a police officer in 1979 who responded to a robbery at Clyde's grocery store. And it's there in Clyde's grocery store that Gary Wayne Wilson was robbing the store and then turned and took the life of police officer Danny Hay who responded to the incident. Danny Hay, to this day and hopefully forever, is the only police officer killed in the line of duty in Maysville. In 1980, after the incident, after the murder, Gary Wayne Wilson went to trial, and the United States court system of justice decided that his murder was the punishment for his crime was 40 years. And so for 40 years, Gary Wayne Wilson was to be, was to be imprisoned to pay to atone for his crime. This is what atonement is. Atonement is paying for the crime. Maybe your mom said when you were a kid, you do the crime, you do the time, right? You know about atonement. A couple weeks ago, Justin went to lunch, and I felt like he was gone for an extra long time, so I was like, you know, maybe he got caught up, maybe somebody was talking to him, and he came back, and and he opened my door to my office, and he looked at me, and he goes, hey, what's the speed limit on the double A? And I laughed, because I knew there's only one reason you asked that question. <laughs> and I said, how fast were you going when they pulled you over? Now, I have to tell you, this is important to understand. Justin grew up in Ashland. Justin went to college in Grayson. Justin has driven the AA a couple of times, right? <laughs> I said, Justin, how fast were you going? And he said, 72. And I said, buddy, that's 27 over. Why were you going so fast? And he said, I thought the speed limit was 60. So here's, here's where things got really interesting. As a man of the cloth, a holy man, a preacher man, I said, well, Justin, shouldn't you have been driving 59? Because we always, always go one mile an hour under the speed limit. And, and uh, you got it. okay, so maybe I'm not the only one who's sped before. And he was laughing, and I said, so how much does your ticket cost? And this will really get you. He said, oh, he let me off with a warning. And I was like, what? Do you know how many times I've been pulled over? Maybe I don't bat my eyes enough, or maybe you lie better than me. I don't know what it is Justin did. But Justin got off with a warning, so I'm never speeding again. So seriously, though, anybody else ever had a speeding ticket before? Raise your hand. Drop your hand if you've had less than two, less than three. Anybody want me to keep going? But if you've had a speeding ticket, you know how it works, right? A policeman pulls you over, they write you a ticket, and then you pay the fine. That's atonement. Atonement is paying the price for the, for the crime that you've committed, for the law that you've broken. The second word I want you to know today is the word Substitution. A substitute is someone who takes the place of another. This is a little more basic word. It's a word you know. You probably know about substitutions because if you were the coach of the Wildcats, you would have a better rotation than Cal ever would have had because you know more about Cal coaching than than Cal does. And I follow you on Twitter, so I know most of you this is true. Like, you are a genius, and it comes, and you know about substitutions, right? When I think of substitutions, the first thing I think of is high school. 
One of the things that I, a job I have on the side is I substitute at Bracken County High School, and it's a really good boost to my ego because when kids turn the corner and see me, they'll immediately go, yes. And I know that it's because they are so excited to see my smiling face and that there's nothing they'd rather have than me in the room, just my presence. Okay, none of that's true. You know this because you went to high school. The only reason you're excited you have a sub is because you get to watch a movie or do busy work when your sub is there, right? Admit it. It's okay. So here's the funny thing. Kids are always excited to see me as the substitute because it means I'm taking the place of someone else. What's interesting to me is that, is that it's not that I'm there. It's that the person who should be there isn't. And this is, these are the two words that are put together then, and these are what we need to know today. The words are substitutionary atonement. Now, I know that's not a word, a phrase you've ever used in your daily life, but this is a phrase that I think if you can get down and that if you can kind of wrap your head around today, it will change your perspective on this whole thing. If you can understand what substitutionary atonement is, then you can start to catch the whole message of Christianity. So here's how I'm going to make this even easier on you. We're going to walk through the entire Bible today real quick, right? I know grandma's got Easter brunch in about a half an hour, so I promise we won't take too many hours, but um, we're going to start. I don't think that's a funny joke because I'm hungry and I didn't eat very good breakfast because mom was feeding me biscuits. Like, all right, so we'll go fast, I promise. So we're going to start at the very beginning of the Bible. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, we meet Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the first two people that God creates, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he tells them they can have their run of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the place where everything is perfect. The Garden of Eden is the place where everything is right, and so he says the only rule is you cannot eat from the tree, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. He says, there's thousands of trees. We believe it to be thousands of acres, this huge, perfect place. And he goes and, and God tells Adam and Eve, the only rule is you cannot eat from this one tree. And so what happens is Eve finds herself standing near that one tree, right? There's thousands of trees in the garden, thousands of places to get food, and Eve's standing near that one tree. And the bad guy, the devil, the enemy... He comes to her in the form of a snake, which I'm of the belief is on purpose because snakes are only good for catching concrete blocks on the top of their head. Snakes are evil. And he comes to her in the form of a snake and he says, did God really say that? Does God really want you to do that? And he tempts Eve into eating from the fruit. And this is where things get interesting. Eve eats from the fruit from the tree she's not supposed to. She gives some to Adam. And what happens next is kind of interesting. And I have to tell you that it's kind of interesting because it's a theory that I'm not sure that I buy into, but it's important to get. There is a theory that in the Garden of Eden where everything is perfect, nothing died. And so the people who, who tell you this theory will tell you that since nothing died in the Garden, Adam and Eve were vegetarians. I have to tell you, that sounds like no place of heaven to me. But this is the way it goes. So there is no record of death in the garden until we get to verse 21. Because in verse 21, God's confronted Adam and Eve. He's told them he knows what they've done. And because, they have, because they've eaten from the tree, they are supposed to die. But then catch this in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife 
and clothed them. So now all of a sudden, something in the garden had to die. An animal had to give up its skin, had to give up its life to cover Adam and Eve. This is the first moment in the Bible of substitutionary atonement. I'm not a hunter, right? Like, it's okay. I'm the only one in the room, but it's fine. Um, I'm not a hunter. I, I'm not big on blood and guts and gore. I'll change the channel if anything like that's on. I'm just kind of a wuss, I guess. And um, so it was interesting because I was thinking about the animal that died for Adam and Eve's clothes. Thinking about the, the gruesome act of killing and skinning an animal to use its skin as clothes. And like, I know that that, that happens and I know that people do it. And it's so funny because in my sermon this week, I wrote, you know, I, I've never really been a part of that. And I think God has a sense of humor. He has a sense of humor because the other day we were traveling on the AA, um, going 55 miles an hour, of course. And um, I think we were in Pendleton County because this is the only kind of place where this sort of thing would happen. There was a truck pulled over on the side of the road. And we were going 55 miles an hour, so I didn't get to catch much of it, but I'm pretty sure the guy was either killing a turkey buzzard with his bare hands or ripping the wings off the turkey buzzard with his bare hands. It might have been a real turkey. It could have been a bald eagle for all I know. I don't know anything. But this guy is on the side of the road just mangling this bird. And I'm like, kids, look the other way, look the other way. Because <laughs> it's this like crazy thing going on. But this is the thing about, about death. Death is gruesome. It's violent. It's a terrible thing. But death had to occur for Adam and Eve. They had to pay the price. But instead of Adam and Eve, there was a substitute. It was an animal. Fast forward a couple generations, and God's people, the Israelites, end up as slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, they're slaves, and for 400 years, God's waiting for restoration with them. And then God finally says to Moses, he says, listen, I'm tired of waiting. He says, I'm going to make this right today. And he says, tonight, there will be an angel that passes over every home in Egypt. And he says, that angel will kill the firstborn son of every household. But God says this, he says, there is one way, one way. For your child, for your firstborn not to be killed. He said, go out into your flock, find the perfect spotless lamb, the best lamb your family has to offer, cut its throat, catch its blood with the bucket, and then take and paint the blood of that lamb across your doorpost. He says, and that lamb will take your family's place. And so again, we see an animal take the place when a person was supposed to die. And this, this method of atonement, this animal taking the place of humans, of humans in, the, in the death becomes a normal thing for the Israelites. To this day, the Jewish, the Jewish community still celebrates what they call the Day of Atonement. You know it as Yom Kippur. They still celebrate this today where there's a special moment when an animal is taken and an animal dies in the place of people because what happens is every day we've lied, every day we've cheated, every day we've stolen, every day we've had an affair, every day we've been angry, every day we've worshipped idols. All of those are things that we are supposed to have atoned for. But instead, something takes our place. 
And what happens over the course of the Bible, as you start to read through books like Jeremiah, Malachi, Micah, as you start to read through all of these books in the Old Testament, the people who were messengers of God, the prophets, they start saying, you know what? There's a day coming when it won't be an animal who dies in your place, but it will be a man. And there's this moment that comes where they start saying, you know what, it's not, it's not about a sheep, it's not about a lamb, it's going to be about a man. And in fact, Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 53, he says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he, he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That kind of death is a gruesome, violent death. That's the kind of death that you want to turn your eyes toward. It's the kind of death that you can't even imagine in your, in your own life. You can't even imagine seeing. But this is the death that Isaiah says is coming to a man. You see, here's what's crazy about this man. This man is God. God, the creator and the, and the, and the founder of the universe, the one who's spoken into existence in the form of his son, Jesus, coming to the neighborhood and putting on skin, born as a baby to Mary and Joseph, being raised in a normal Israelite household in the first century, being, doing everything a normal boy does except for one thing. He never lies. He never cheats. He never steals. He never is angry. He never has has a false idol. He never has an affair. He lives for 33 years perfect. The things that we do every day, the things that mean we're supposed to die, he does none of them. Listen to the way John the Baptist describes him in John chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is he describing? The substitutionary atonement. The one who would take our place. You see, we deserved death. We deserved pain. We deserved sorrow. But instead, Jesus went to the cross. Every week, we as a church celebrate Jesus going to the cross, and we do it by taking what we call communion, and the men pass out this piece of bread and this cup, and in that piece of bread and that cup, it represents something that happened. It happened on the day we call Good Friday 2,000 years ago. Jesus was arrested, and he was beaten with whips. His back was flogged 39 times with whips made of glass and, and leather and every kind of painful thing that you could imagine. 
He then carried a wooden beam so heavy that it would support a man, carried it across town on that same back that had just been flogged. And it was there that they took a crown of thorns that they made for him and shoved it onto his head. And it was there that they then nailed his wrists to that cross and nailed his feet to the beam that held the cross up. And it was there that Jesus died in a gruesome death to take our place. So here in just a moment, the guys are going to come and they're going to pass you a piece of bread and they're going to pass you a cup. And as they're doing that, we're going to show this, this clip and it, it's tasteful. Parents, there's nothing for you to worry about. But as they're passing the bread and the cup, as they're, as they're bringing those forward, I want you to hold on to that bread and the cup until the very end. Because at the very end of the video, you'll see that verse from Isaiah chapter 53 again. And in that verse from Isaiah chapter 53, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. And in that moment, I want you to remind yourself that He, the substitutionary atonement, took your place. So guys, if you'll take the communion and we'll watch this clip. Six feet under, 
body was broken for us. His blood was poured out so that he could take our place. When you think about it, when you, when you really get to the root of the issue and you start to realize that this is what I deserved, this is what I had earned, but he did for But I have to tell you, the beauty of this story is that it's not over. The beauty of the story is that that Friday evening, he died and he was laid in a grave and they rolled a stone in front of the grave so large that no one knew what to do next. But it's in that moment that, they, that the stone was rolled in there that God's plan was set into place. And with God's plan set into place, they then had an opportunity for Jesus to walk out. It says in Matthew chapter 27, it says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. You see, a lot of leaders and a lot of revolutionaries have died. People died for, for causes that they thought they believed in. People died for causes that they thought were important. But there's only one leader, there's only one revolutionary who died in our place and came back from the dead. There's only one of those who died, who, who died a visible, physical, gruesome death and walked back out of the grave. You see, the reason he took our place is so that we don't have to experience death. And here's what happens. As I tell you that Jesus took our place and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave so that we don't have to experience death. And your next question is, then why did I stand in the front of a funeral home with tears in my eyes? If Jesus took our place so that we don't have to die, why is that person I love still in the ground? Why did that person I love have to go? And I think that's a fair question. But I want you to know that the death that you and I experience, the moment when our heart stops beating, the moment when our brain stops functioning, the moment when the people on this planet say goodbye, is not the end. That is a temporary death. The death that God said was the punishment for our sins wasn't that temporary death. The death that God said was the punishment for our sins is a death that is an eternal and permanent suffering in a place called hell. So that death, that's the one that Jesus took the place for us. That is the death that Jesus took our moment, took our shame, took our punishment, and took it, put it on him. It's because he took that death that you and I have hope. It's because he walked out of the grave after taking on that death that we can believe in a place we call heaven. 
And I want to challenge you because maybe for you, you're not sure that when you die on this earth, that heaven is where you go. I want to challenge you and I want to tell you that I know how to get there, that it's because you can allow Jesus to take your place. You can allow Jesus to die your permanent death that you too can go to heaven. That because Jesus died and was buried and because he rose from the grave, you have an opportunity to follow in that same path. My friends, I want to tell you this. I want to tell you that people you love will die and have died. I want to tell you that there is pain in when people leave us on this earth. But do you remember how I told you that evil, that the devil was represented by a snake? I think it's on purpose. I told you I I hate snakes. I think they're the worst creature on the face of the planet. I think the only thing snakes are good for is catching concrete blocks on the top of their head because they should all just die. But I ended up at a friend's house one day, and we were watching, because I live an exciting life, we were watching the Discovery Channel. You're right, don't be jealous. And, um, and this moment happens on the Discovery Channel where they're talking about this lady with a pet boa constrictor, which tells you she's not right in her head, Okay? There is no one who thinks this is a good idea. Further proving my point, this lady decides that her boa constrictor needs a bath. And so she takes the boa constrictor out of whatever terrible thing you put a boa constrictor in and puts it in the bathtub. Come to find out, boa constrictors don't like baths. And so he slides out of the bath, and the first thing he constricts around as a boa constrictor is the toilet right next to the tub. And so the lady starts panicking as she's watching this boa constrictor do what it does and crushing the toilet. And she's like, he could do that to me. Like, yeah, you should have thought about that, that before you bought the snake. But that's beside the point. And so she calls the police and somehow the Discovery Channel and camera crews get involved and they see this. And there's this moment where they're, they're filming the snake and they lure the snake outside into the yard. And it's there outside in the yard that a saint of a person cuts the head off the snake. I think when they get to heaven, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. (laughs) But here's what's interesting. Is when the snake dies, and this this is, you can look it up on YouTube if you're sick, but when a snake dies, it doesn't stop. When you cut the head off a snake, when you kill a snake, it writhes on the ground for several minutes. It's not over for the snake when you cut its head off. It takes a while for the snake to stop moving. And so here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that because Jesus took your place, you don't have to die the eternal suffering, pain, and torment of hell. You don't have to do any of that. But I want you to know that even though Jesus defeated the snake, even though the Bible tells us he stepped on the head of the snake, that evil is still writhing on the ground. That 2,000 years later, it's still a thing, and it's still fighting, and it's still trying to take whoever it can with him. The only choice is either to follow the snake that's already been killed or to follow the Jesus who walked out of the grave. Those are your two options. One leads you to a place of eternal torment and suffering, and the other one leads you to the place where your tears are wiped away and where there's only goodness. My friends, Jesus is your hope. He is your answer. Jesus is the one who took your place if you let him. Will you pray with me? Father God, we 
don't deserve to have your son take our place. We don't deserve for, for him to have stood in our way and say, I will pay the price. But he did. And for that, Jesus, we, we are thankful for you. We're thankful to remind ourselves that he died and he was buried and he rose again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.